This is a very special episode of Admission Straight Talk. It is our 500th episode. And as you can probably tell, I'm very proud of that fact. And we've been working hard to present an especially informative episode for you today with several different guests and remarkable insight into the graduate admissions process. So plug in your earbuds. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 500th episode of Admissions Straight Talk. I'll say that again. Welcome to the 500th episode of Mission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. This is a very special episode. As I said already a few times, it's the 500th, and I am very proud of it. And we've been working hard, as I said a minute ago, to present a particularly informative show. I've invited different accepted consultants over the course of the past few weeks to respond to the one question that each one believes applicants should ask and know the answer to, and frequently don't ask and therefore never learn the answer to it. So this is a collection of clips with different consultants recorded on different days. You'll see me in different clothing. And they're addressing different issues. I think you'll find it invaluable as you apply. I've been finding it very interesting to hear what they're asking and also what they're answering. Our guests today are, as I said, experienced admissions consultants and frequently former admissions committee members. If you're curious as to what they consider the most important questions you don't ask, and how you should answer them, or how they will answer them, then pull up a chair, plug in those earbuds, and help us celebrate number 500, while you learn a ton of critical information that will help you apply successfully. I'm going to start with a question right now. What is the paradox at the heart of graduate admissions? I'll tell you. You need to fit in and stand out. And you can learn how to master that paradox, and I'm not crazy, that's really what you have to do, by downloading Accepted's free guide, Fitting in and standing out, the paradox at the heart of admissions. Now, let's get started. There's a ton to cover. Let's start with our first guest, Sydney Foote, who also happens to be one of Accepted's most experienced and consequently most beloved consultants, having started at Accepted in 2001. Before joining Accepted, she was an administrator at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She's also written three ebooks on med school admissions, and she's guided hundreds, if not thousands, of applicants to acceptance, mostly in the healthcare field. Welcome, Sydney. And the question for you is, what's a useful tool that applicants can and should use no matter what stage of the application process they're in? So I think one of the most useful things that someone can do before they are even starting to write their application materials is to keep a journal. It sounds very simple. It sounds like something a little kid would do, you know, your your dear diary. But I found that so many people, when they sit down to write, their first question is, I don't know what to write about. If you will keep a journal for the months, even the years before you start writing, you can kind of flip back through that and see what you've done and kind of get an overall pattern. Often you'll see these patterns arising of things that you enjoyed, things that you did well, kind of the way that I don't know, the universe is nudging you towards a certain area. And a lot of that can just slip by you in, you know, in your daily life as you're running from one event to the next. But if you'll write it down just five minutes a day, 
then you'll have a whole wealth of material to go back on and, and look for later. Another really good reason to do this is because when you are writing, you have to support your claims. This is one of the most severe flaws that I see in a lot of people's writing in their first drafts is they will make claims about things that they did. I am a great team player. I'm a great leader. I am a great communicator. But without the examples to support that, there's nothing that will help the person who's reading the application believe that you are. And it's not that they necessarily disbelieve you, but they don't have anything to compare. So again, if you have something written down, those examples can be used to support your claims and it will just make your application process so much more powerful, compelling, and convincing. And there's also a final reason for doing this. When you start to write your application, especially for medical school, but for any field, you're going to be doing a lot of writing. If you haven't been used to doing that on a daily basis, which you probably haven't been if you're a science major and you're, you know, just focused on on those kind of subjects, you probably are not doing a ton of writing. So if you will just take five minutes a day and start exercising your writing muscle, it will make the rest of the process feel so much easier when you finally dive in. That's great advice. In terms mm-hmm. of what to include in the in the journal entries, do you recommend just focusing on what happened or perhaps why is it important and what they learned from it? I think this is supposed to be only five or 10 minutes a day, but uh, and I probably just expanded the five to 10. But anyways, um, what, what do you say about that? Um, I think both are useful. I think that a lot of people start out just writing about their daily activities, something that impressed them that they saw in the ER, something that a clinician did that they thought was really neat or that they said to them. It may be like an activity that someone told you to get involved in. So it can be anything, but those concrete examples, I think are really important. As you start to break out, as you start to, to get more comfortable with writing, then sure, I think you'll start to notice things about what you think. And it really depends on how reflective you are as a person, I think. So yes, if you want to talk about things that are meaningful to you and actually start to do some little drafting along the way for what might be in your personal statement someday, that's fine. But don't take on too much, especially if you're not used to doing it, because it's better to have a little bit every day than to have a huge volumes at the beginning and then taper off. I agree. Thank you so much, Sid. Really appreciate it. Sure. Take care. Okay. Take care. I'd like to introduce our next guest, Dr. Valerie Worley, who is the former Assistant Dean of Student Affairs at the William Beaumont School of Medicine and former Director of Pre-Health Advisement at Sacred Heart University. Dr. Worley has over 20 years of experience working with successful pre-med, pre-health, and pre-master's students, helping them to create their most competitive application. She brings that experience to bear in guiding her clients at Accepted and in answering our question today. So the question is, Dr. Worley, for any pre-health applicant, what is the benefit of revealing a hobby or two on your application? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I love this question. I think that there is great benefit in pre-health applicants revealing and sharing a hobby or two on their application. I will say that with a caveat. I do think when talking about a hobby, applicants should think, is the hobby meaningful? Can they reflect on what they have learned as a result of participating in this particular hobby in terms of skills acquired or things like interpersonal communication? And ideally, have they uh, been participating in this hobby 
for a long-term period of time. And I think if they can think about those three aspects of the hobby, then it would qualify as being eligible for going on one of those pre-health applications. Hobbies are the portion of the application that reveal something very unique and interesting about an applicant. Now, you know, these pre-health applicants have done an incredible amount of work in terms of taking science classes, getting a competitive GPA, doing clinical work, and proving themselves in that domain. And these hobbies are a way to reveal a specific component of themselves that is interesting and unique and maybe shows some diversity that could really click with a member of an admissions committee and really elevate that application into the next round. That's a great answer. Um, And one other thing is hobbies also are that part that shows that applicants really understand the benefit of work-life balance, that, you know, not only can they devote time in the classroom and to their clinical work, but also they know how to unwind and unplug. And so when they get into graduate school, they are going to have to work so very hard in the class with didactic work and clinical work. But when they have time off, do they know how to give some time just to themselves? So whether it's dancing or singing or exercising, whatever it is, that's really an important thing that admissions committees are looking for too, because it's important for both mental health and wellness and maybe avoiding burnout. Great answer. I remember one of my earliest clients, this was well over 20 years ago. He was, and he was a med- medical school applicant. He was a butterfly collector. He found butterflies fascinating. He studied them, he collected them, and he put it as one of his additional activities on the MCAS app. He said every interviewer asked him about that hobby. Amazing. Amazing. And, and I heard a similar story when, um, when interviews were in person. that a medical school candidate had gone to an interview and talked about his guitar playing. And he had been playing guitar since a child, playing acoustic guitar. And his interviewer pulled a guitar out from behind his desk. Oh my goodness. Said, Could you play a song for me? And the applicant did. And it was a great connection between the applicant and the interviewer. So you never know what you're going to put down as a hobby that will really connect with somebody on an admissions committee. That's true. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure now to introduce Dr. Karen Ash. Dr. Ash, who has her PhD in educational psychology and organizational behavior from Cornell University, has been an accepted admissions consultant since 2015 after serving as head of career services for both Cornell University and the Cornell Johnson School of Business. She also has worked at the engineering program at Cornell University. And here is a question for Dr. Ash. Dr. Ash, what is the most important part of the application for applicants in the STEM field? Okay. Thank you. Well, first of all, for those of you, I think everyone is familiar with STEM, but just in case, it's science, technology, engineering, and math. Thank you. And I get that question, actually. It's not uncommon to get that question from STEM applicants or from any applicants, I suppose. And my response would be that all parts of the application are important. But you can't change your GPA. It's a fact. You can take the GRE only so many times and your score is a fact if you're applying 
the top schools, you're competing against a lot of other people who also have good scores. Those are facts. Your resume is a list of facts. Your references, there's some room for creative thought on the part of the writer, and it's your job to provide the facts to him or her to make sure that they can write a very detailed letter that provides examples showing how your skills are the right skills for that grad program, and you'll be successful. But the essay is where you have the most room for creativity and to present yourself to a admissions committee, your personality, your the whys, the motivations for every decision you've made. You know, why did you major in what you did? Why did you choose the work that you did? Why did you focus on the particular research area? You have more control over your essay than any other part of your application. So I wouldn't say that the essay is the most important part, but it's a critical component that you have the control to steer. So that's what I would tell a a client. Right. Normally, by the time you have the GPA and you have the GRE and you have whatever work experience or extracurricular experience that you have at the point in time of, of application, how you present that is really the only thing you have control over. Right. And the essay is a big part of that presentation. So, you know, your motivations, the whys, the presenting your the realistic career goals, right. which is really where you really want to start in your thought process is, here are my goals. Let's work backwards. How does my story directly relate to those goals? Right. The other thing you can do with an essay, you can reach out to current students or recent alumni, learn more about the program from their perspective. You can learn more than you can get from a website, and you might be able to incorporate some of what you learn into your essay. So I, you know, I just think that there's so much more room for you to maneuver in an essay than any other part. There are short answers on the application that you have some control over, but uh, I think the essay is important and it's where I believe that accepted consultants provide a lot of value to you. I agree. I agree. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming on. You're very welcome. And we'll include a link, by the way, to Dr. Ash's bio page in the show notes. I'd like to now welcome Kelly Wilson to number 500. Kelly has previously been a guest on Admissions Trade Talk when she was the Executive Director for Master's Admissions at Carnegie Mellon University Tepper School of Business. Prior to that, she was Assistant Dean and Director, MBA Admissions at Georgetown McDonough, which I think is actually where I met you, and mm-hmm. at Pittsburgh Cats. She brings almost 25 years of admissions experience to us today. The question for Kelly is, Admissions directors frequently say, quote, be authentic. Don't write what you think we want to hear, close quote. How can an applicant be authentic, put their best foot forward, especially when responding to goals questions where the applicant is worried their goal is too distant from what they've done in the past or weird or somehow just not going to pass muster? I I think that's a valid concern. From an applicant standpoint, there are times when I think the tendency is to think about what should I write? What do they want to hear? For me, that's flawed thinking, but I understand why people think it. What I would like to encourage people to think through is 
What are the goals you want based on where you are currently and what the aspirations you have for your career? There might be a goal that is too much to accomplish in a short period of time of the MBA program. And so I think just some thought and some conversation with a coach to talk through, you know, what makes sense? Is the short-term goal really the short-term goal? Or might that be an, uh, you know, an intermediate goal where based on someone's background, they should think about what's a, what's an interim step to get you to that goal. That's one way to think about it. One thing that I caution people against is to think about stating goals that they think will sit well with the admissions committee. So for an example, I had a conversation not too long ago with a candidate who was currently working in like a tech startup space. Mm-hmm. And they were they were thinking about business school and literally said, I, you know, I think maybe I should say that I'm interested in consulting since many, many more people go into consulting. And I said, okay, let's talk about that a little bit because I I understand that a lot of MBA programs and, and the, you know, consulting is for most programs is going to be one of the top sectors that, that students go into, but it's not the only one. Better for the applicant to think about how should they connect the dots between what they're doing and what they want to do, but yet convey an openness to opportunities that might arise once they get to school? Nothing that you that a candidate writes in their essays is set in stone by the school. No yeah, one they're not signing a contract. Oh, no one from the career office pulls that out and says, but you said this. <laughs> right. So I think I think the the best thing to do is to think about what you truly want to do and how the MBA will help you get there and then position it as, yeah, it makes sense as the short-term goal or this is my goal, but I think I need an intermediate step to get there or this is my goal, but I also have an interest in maybe consulting, right? Uh, Like the tech startup space is really where I want to be, but I see in the longer run, where skills I might get in three to five years of consulting work could be very valuable in the tech startup space. And so I think that's the conversation to have is really how do I think through the possibilities and and really be authentic in in what I want to do while understanding how the programs that you're applying to can can help to get you there. If the school's don't expect you to really, you know, you're not signing a contract. They're not going to hold you to it. Yeah. Why Why are they so interested in them? What's the yeah. point? Another really good question. And here has, the, this was my philosophy the whole time is, as I was looking at an application, I wanted to see that somebody did the work to think through a plausible path. What makes sense? And what is, what can they accomplish at the school that they were applying to? And if it's, you know, school A might be a little bit different than school B. And so, so then the the way someone presents those goals, you, you might want to, you know, there might be other things to bring to bear. But from the admissions committee standpoint, a plausible path is really what they want to see that you've, that the candidate has given it thought and, and what your plan is makes sense. You know, one of the things I remember working at admissions is being at an event with prospective students and having a panel of alums. And it was 
it happened more often than not that the that the alumni would say, well, don't tell admissions as we're standing there. Don't tell admissions, but that's not really what I wanted to do, or I didn't know that that's what I wanted to do. And, and that's not what our expectation, our expectation isn't that you have to know. It's that the plan you lay out makes sense. Because if you lay out a sensible plan now, you can do it in the future if your interests change. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly. Really appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll be in touch. If you want to work with Kelly, she's available. Our next guest is Natalie Greenblatt-Epstein. Before joining Accepted way back in 2008, Natalie was admissions director, dean and director, I should say, for three different top MBA programs. Her clients have been accepted to M7 MBA programs and indeed to elite programs around the world. So my question for you, Natalie, today is, what would you do or what would you advise applicants to do if they were rejected from round one applications and they're debating about what should they do with round two applications? So Linda, that's a great question because every year I run into the situation where maybe they went alone in round one, didn't use any kind of counseling, coaching, advice, consulting that we offer, and they come to me and want to know what they should do. So the first thing that we'll do is gather some data. So the data that we want to gather is we want to assess the application. Okay. So what went well, what didn't go well, what are some holes, things that you can improve between round one and round two? Maybe it's updating a resume. Maybe it's being more clear about goals. Maybe it's being more clear about answering the prompt, and maybe it's connecting with the school, showing that you share your values. There are possibilities that it might just be numbers, in which case we might advise to retake a test or to offer to take a class. Hard to do in a month, but certainly if you enroll in a class, you can discuss that with the admissions committee in an optional essay. The second thing we do after the assessment and figuring out what we can do between now and January is try to figure out how to highlight the strengths and mitigate the weaknesses. So that's how we will approach the applications. And of course, we want to cast the net a little bit more widely. Are there schools out there that would still allow this candidate to achieve their goals without there being another issue, right? If you're only looking at rankings, you might not be finding the school that's best suited for you, okay? So we're going to cast it out a little bit more widely, discuss those schools, do the same sort of research that we would do with round one. We'd want that person to get in touch with people at the school, students, alumni, staff. We'd want them to either virtually or in-person visit um, so they get a sense of what those schools are. And then we, again, when we're doing the application, address the questions that may have come up in the round one applications. Great. Wonderful answer. Thank you so much, Natalie. Really appreciate you joining me here today. 
Oh, it's been a pleasure, Linda. And congratulations on your 500th episode. Thank you. So number 500's next guest is Vanessa Febo, who joined Accepted about a year ago. Vanessa has been teaching writing at UCLA for the last 10 years and has guided applicants to acceptance at top schools like Harvard, Stanford, UCLA, and USC, as well as to elite scholarships, including the Fulbright, Ford Foundation, Knight Hennessy, Marshall, and Truman. So welcome, Vanessa. And the question for you is, what is something that is often missing from the first draft of an applicant's statement of purpose? Great question. Something that is often missing from the first draft of an applicant's statement of purpose is the very basic who, what, when, where, why type of information. Um, This is something that I see time and time again working with clients is that they spend a lot of time trying to articulate their deep sort of reasons for wanting to join the program, which is absolutely necessary. And they spend time talking maybe about their research experiences, which is absolutely necessary and important to do. But in the process, you know, they may forget to mention what school did they go to or what was the project about? I recently was working with a client who was working on a project and it's an engineering application and they didn't he didn't state what the problem they were trying to solve was or or even just you know what was the purpose of doing this this work so it's kind of funny because a lot the first round of a statement of purpose oftentimes what I'm doing is asking when was this was this while you were in school was this after? Or what company was this with? (laughs) So it's oftentimes not the sort of like deep philosophical, why do you want to get a PhD or or a master's degree? It's more just what is the timeline for your work? The the basics, huh? Like you say. Yeah. I sometimes am surprised in the statement of purpose, applicants don't have a real purpose for their course of study. Or somehow it gets lost in the deep philosophical ramblings, but the real purpose yes. of their applying to this particular program and what they want to do after this particular program and what they want to do after the program is somehow absent. Yes, that's a really good point. I think for sure the so on so on the one hand, it is like the who, what, when, where, why kind of question. And I think that you're absolutely right that in addition to that, often it is why are you going to put yourself through more schooling. Why do you (laughs) want to be there? What do you plan to do while you're there? And I think you're completely right that one thing that I almost never see right off the bat on an application on the statement of purpose is the purpose. What do you want to do with your degree when you are done? That is, you know, and I'll be surprised too how many times clients haven't really thought about that as well, which is in a way a really good thing because the statement of purpose can be a real pain in the butt for, you know, you know, why am I doing this essay? But it can also be a real chance to figure out what do you want to do? Why are you applying to these schools? Absolutely. And it is really hard to write a statement of purpose if you don't have a purpose. So. <laughs> It is. Yeah, it's kind of in the name. It is. You know, I always talk about a statement of purpose being a very forward looking document. And sometimes it's a personal statement, which is a little bit more backwards looking. And you will, of course, in a statement of purpose, talk about your past experiences, but they really want to know 
And I think it's a very, you know, reasonable thing for them to ask, what are you going to do in the program? And what are you going to do afterwards? And why? <laughs> why do you want a spot here? But on the flip side, it can actually be really difficult to figure out. You know, oftentimes we know we want to do something, but we're not exactly sure how to explain it. Um, right. Or sometimes the the reason might be, you know, I like the location of the school, which is a legitimate reason, but it shouldn't be your only reason. Right. Um, yeah. Right. For sure. So I guess the bottom line is don't forget who, what, where, when, and of course the why, the purpose. The why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the why is number one. <laughs> All right. So thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate you joining me for number 500. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'd like to welcome Alice Diamond to our episode today. Alice was the Associate Dean for Career and Community Service at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has 35 years of experience in career and admissions advising for undergraduate and graduate students. She joined Accepted in 2021. Alice, the question for you is, how important are extracurricular activities in my graduate school application? So the answer is extracurricular activities can be really important. And it depends on a couple of things. The first is how much the connection you can make between the activities that you have and the field that you want to enter. Did your activities actually have an impact on your decision to go into this career field? So let me give a couple examples. You're applying to grad school in clinical social work or marriage and family counseling, and you want to be a therapist. Well, you were a resident assistant in your residence hall as an undergraduate. That experience can be extremely relevant if you think about the skills that you developed. You mediated conflicts between roommates. You created a living learning environment in your residence halls. I'm sure you had to develop crisis management skills and you were a peer leader. So if you can articulate those experiences and how they relate to the counseling field, it'll be tremendously helpful. Another example, you're gonna go into the healthcare professions, for example, occupational therapy or speech and language pathology. And one of your experiences was volunteering over a period of time at a shelter for people in need. Whenever you've interacted with diverse populations and especially those that are underserved, especially dealing with people who have been facing challenges like housing, finances, social and emotional challenges. It gives you the kind of experience that's really relevant to working in a healthcare setting. So it's great to mention that in your application. Often people are a member of an athletic team and that experience of being part of a team and collaborating together, facing challenges. Also, sometimes an athletic team member will have a direct experience like interacting with the team trainer that impacts their decision to go into a field like physical therapy. So it's really, really helpful to mention. A couple caveats. One is it's depth, not breadth, that matters with activities. So a long list of things that you did, the one-time activities, while they're wonderful, you know, you did the walk for hunger, that's great. It was one day, it was a long walk, but it's not gonna have the impact on your application that ongoing activities where you really learned, you contributed, you changed, and most important, you can reflect on the experience because 
Where extracurricular activities matter is when you learn and grow and it's what you talked about. So it's great that you worked at a soup kitchen, but more important is the reflection that you had about what you learned about hunger and homelessness from that experience. So I really encourage you to think about the activities that really made a difference to you and you can describe them often. The grad school essays will be really helpful places to bring this in. And I also want to mention that in higher education, we're actually going from the word extracurricular to the word co-curricular because the idea is that it's really not extra. You know, let's say you're applying to grad school in political science and you had a leadership role in student government. That experience could be essential and also a really good complement to your academic experiences in the classroom. So we use the word now co-curricular to just give the sense of how important it is to your personal and professional development inside and outside of the classroom. Excellent points all around. So the question should have been, how important are co-curricular activities in your graduate school application? Okay, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. Dr. Herman Gordon, aka Flash, is the past chair of admissions at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. He has an AB degree from Harvard College and a PhD from Caltech. Since 2014, he has helped accepted clients gain acceptance to medical schools and PhD programs in the sciences. And the question for you today is, how do applicants avoid triggering negative stereotypes and implicit bias when applying? Ah, okay. So uh, let me take a step back and talk a little bit about what happens in the committee room okay, when, great. Uh, when the client's application comes in. So I've served on national grant review panels as well as on the admissions committee and similar dynamics in both. So everybody wants to you know, find good people and develop them and help nurture them. So there's a, there's a real positive aspect to it, but there's also you know, the need to select in both grants and med school applications. I was going to also be PhD applicants. You've, you've been on those committees too, haven't right. you? Right. Yes. And yeah. PhDs as well. You know, the uh, acceptance rate can be less than 10%. So it's pretty brutal. So there's an aspect of admissions, which is weeding people out. And uh, in medical admissions, that gets weeded out. Uh, at several steps. The first step is at the invitation for an interview. And then the next key step happens when the application goes forward to the whole committee and then gets reviewed there. And in all those steps of the way, uh, there's opportunity for bias and stereotypes. And I think an important concept as part of this is red flags, right? So what tends to happen uh, at least at the end of the line when it gets to the committee, is that if somebody doesn't want the application to move forward, they can pick up a red flag and say, look, we can't accept it because of this, right? And then the application's tubed. So a serious red flag would be, oh, a couple of DUIs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but there are, are much more subtle ones. So that's part of what I do uh, with applicants is to bring that perspective of anything that could possibly uh, be picked up as a red flag. Well, you want to phrase that differently. You want to present it differently. So I, I help with that. Uh, the other aspect is that there are uh, just certain biases 
that different people have. And not all reviewers have it, only some have it. You know, 20 years ago, we talked about racial biases. Uh, today, it's much more subtle. It can be, for example, engineering students, right? So I personally have loved teaching uh, engineering students in med school. They have uh, really good problem-solving minds, and I think it's uh, something that should be mined <laughs> for med school. But I have seen this both in working on committees as well as working with applicants who have engineering backgrounds that they just have a harder time of it. And I think that's because there's this perception that, oh, they're nerds, they're bad with people, you know, they're not going to be good doctors. They can't <laughs> yeah. communicate. Right. They can't communicate. And, you know, it's just not true. Uh, it's it, it's just like all biases and, and stereotypes. It's just, you know, you can think it, but it doesn't mean that it's true. And and it's, it's wrong to apply it to everybody and to just rule people out uh, for that kind of reason. So... Being aware that those kind of biases are out there, I think it's important to cast an application, you know, to defend against those biases. So, so let's, for, let's take your engineering example. How would you have right. an engineering client? How how would you advise that engineering client to fight the stereotype? Right. To disprove so, the stereotype as, as it applies to him or her. Right. So it's very important that they present their people skills. And those could be like on the job, in you know collaborations in small groups, uh, and hopefully it's in their community service efforts and in their clinical pre-medical training that they can demonstrate that they can work effectively with people and that it's a driver for them, that it's something that's important for them. And, and so you break the stereotype, and then that allows the application to... Uh, to go through and be really processed on its merits instead. So That's great insight and great advice. Thank you so much for joining me for number 500. Sure. Our next guest is Esmeralda Cardinal, former Associate Director of Admissions at Yale School of Management, Director of MBA Admissions at MSU Broad, and Consultant at Cardiff Business School in the UK. Since 2014, Esmeralda has guided acceptance clients to acceptance in various graduate programs, including MBA, Masters in Finance, Business Analytics, Data Science, Sustainability, and Public Policy. Esmeralda, the question for you is, what are the most underrated by applicants, parts of the applications, and how should they be viewed and treated? So in my 20 years doing this in admissions, I would say that the most underrated, uh, perhaps forgotten part of the application are the application boxes, the short answer questions, those very, those questions that are not on the website, but that are on the portal once you go in and, and, and create your account. Those are usually the ones that are people pretty much tend to forget and leave to the last minute. And what happens when they do that? So what happens is that usually people take a lot of time in, which is wonderful in their essays and resume and all the other elements of the application. And then on the 11th hour, when they're submitting everything, they find out that there are all these short answer questions with very tight character limit that are required. The problem with this happens is twofold. One is usually at this time, there is not much time left. <laughs> That's right. So they're rushing this, something that should not be rushed because a lot of the times is what uh, the admissions committee see first. They see the resume and they see these application boxes just to get a kind of a, a general, well-rounded picture of the applicant. 
So you don't want to rush anything, especially you don't want to rush these questions, these answers. Also, what happens is a lot of these questions ask about elements of the work experience, extracurricular leadership that many times are have already been touched on in the essays. So the problem arises when, you know, now all of a sudden they are repeating things they already said in the essays. Maybe they should not be repeated. So, so it's something that most definitely I tell all my clients to do that as soon as they know that they are interested in a school, they're going to be applying to that school to go in and create their account. So they know exactly what that school asks. Get all those short answer questions, all those application boxes, if you will, put them into a Word doc or a Google doc and treat them as you would treat an essay in terms of answer them carefully, make sure that you are answering within the character limit. These questions are very, they have a very tight and very strict character limit. And when they say about 300 characters, we're not talking about 300 words. Like one client did for me one time that she was writing 500 words it is. It was 500 characters, which is very different, um, oh, and uh, it is actually around 100 words if you think about right. it. For right. and this, these characters usually include spaces, so you want to make sure that you're writing concise, to the point, answering all these questions, and you have them all answered. So by the time of the deadline comes in, you are 100% ready, and you're not rushing any part of your application. I just gave a webinar last night, and the point that I was making, very much to your point, was that the first thing applicants should do would be to list everything they're going to have to provide in the application and strategically go through and say, what are you going to reveal in each response Mm -hmm. that's not found elsewhere? Because that's the way to approach it holistically, strategically, and make sure that they are making use of every character, every box, and every inch of application real estate. Absolutely. That's what it is. And that's why, by the way, I so loved your question. When um, I started thinking, what is something that I wish everybody would know? It is this one because not everybody knows. It is so easily forgotten. A lot of times it's because the schools list only their essays. So when you go in into the school's requirements, they, you, you see the essays, but you don't see the short answer questions. So that is one thing. The other thing is, as you're writing your resume and, and putting together a resume, you don't need job duties and responsibilities in what you do on a day-to-day because that is going to be asked in those short answers. So a lot of my clients, they send me that and they say, but I want them to get an idea of what I do, of my responsibilities. And that's when I send them to the short answers and they're like, oh, Yes, that's where I have that time. So there is a lot more that you can say in the applications that you might not think that you can because of all those hidden boxes that you have there. Hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Great answer. Great question. Thank you so much for joining me for number 500. You're very welcome. Our next guest is Jamie Wright, who has been on Admissions Straight Talk several times before. First, when she was Senior Recruitment and Admissions Manager at London Business School Early Career Programs, and later after joining Accepted in 2017. Since then, she has helped clients gain acceptance to top programs in the United States and the EU, including London Business School, INSEAD, Oxford Said, Cambridge Judge, Imperial IE, and others. So welcome, Jamie. Here's your question. What's the ideal candidate to business school? And can you give me a percentage chance that I can get in even if I don't meet the ideal? 
Okay. So I think the quick and simple, easy answer to both is, is there's not sort of an ideal, and I'll go into a bit more detail about that. And no, I, I can't give any likelihood, an exact number percentage of your chances of your application being successful. So maybe if I break the, the questions down into two separate answers. So in terms of the profile, I think that there still exists a, I don't know if it's a rumor or a thought, but that in order to attend business school, you have to come from a certain background. And I hear it all the time talking to clients. They say you need to have worked in finance or consulting or have these sort of, you know, big brand blue chip companies on your resume. And, you know, there are these profiles in business school classrooms. And it's not to say that they don't add any value, but they're not all of the profiles. And, and I, you know, don't think that schools want a homogenous grouping of students, nor do I think that students, applicants, candidates want to be in a classroom filled with people who look, sound just like themselves and have the same background and experience. And, and I know I don't have to say it, but I will because everyone knows it. But, you know, these range of experiences, be it academic or professional or extracurricular, you know, it all results in a range of perspectives and discussion and debate, hopefully interesting in, in the classroom. So that's all to say that there might not be an exact profile that schools are looking for, but there are what I would consider, I guess, common attributes that they want to see in applicants. So there are things like passion. There are things like leadership potential, commitment, drive, a lot of talk about EQ and IQ and AQ skills. These are all the attributes that make not only successful students, but eventually make successful employees as well, right? Those the, the when they go off into the working world after completing their MBA or master's in management, master's in finance, whatever it is. So I would say that they're more common qualities that schools are looking for, but there's not, you know, kind of a, a, a mold, like a cookie cutter mold that, that applicants need to come from. So if, you know, I come from, I don't know, to name a background, I was working on a not-for-profit, mm-hmm. but I showed initiative, I showed ingenuity, I showed creativity, I showed lead, I, I led. Yeah, absolutely. And I think interesting you say nonprofit. I think a lot of times that sort of pops up is, oh, I fall into this sort of quote unquote non-traditional category. And I continue to use these air quotes to talk about non-traditional, which I think is a little bit silly now because I don't even know that it's as relevant anymore. There are, I suppose, those who might come from what would be considered non-traditional, but these students are making up a much bigger proportion of, of the classroom. And, you know, admissions committee members, they love to see an applicant coming from a nonprofit, you know, a different background and in front of the desk. I used to love it when, when I would I, I would see people coming from, again, different backgrounds, different journeys, because it's those journeys that make the classroom experience unique. And I think anyone would say, maybe not, not academics, but, you know, you learn as much from your peers as you do from from faculty. And, you know, the schools are very aware of that. So they want to make sure that that peer-to-peer learning is happening. And and you do want to learn from these, you know, interesting, you know, people coming from different backgrounds. Absolutely. I volunteered for several years for, um, for Forte and they would, and Mm -hmm. they would let me, I guess, moderate a certain table and the tables had different, different definitions. I always took the non-traditional, quote unquote, in air quotes, non-traditional table. I loved yeah. it because they tell me how they're non-traditional. I'd say, that's great. You're not, first of all, you're not so non-traditional. Second of all, that's the background they love. 
So absolutely. And even within, you know, consulting or finance, those are so broad as terms. They're incredibly broad. And, you know, I've seen people in backgrounds in, you know, really interesting things within finance, but they're doing like risk management or fintech or consulting. They're doing sort of in-house strategy for in interesting sectors. So, you know, even within those quote unquote traditional business spheres, there's a lot of variation that you see and, and, and they're interested in that as well. Absolutely. And can you just touch on that whole percentage question that that was the second part of the question I raised. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a question that I, I get a lot. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, all of my colleagues here accepted do as well. And what I would say is that we can always give our recommendation as to whether we think a candidate stands a chance at a particular school. And we can acknowledge they have a good profile or there's some interesting things about their profile. But whether or not they're admitted, it really depends on the whole application and not just what we see on that one page resume or CV. And I don't think that it's possible to give that percentage, that really exact estimate without going deeper. So just as an example for that, when I worked at London Business School and led the Early Careers Admissions Committee, I would reject candidates who look good on paper. But if I couldn't understand their ambitions, what was driving them, what they were passionate about. And I couldn't see any real motivation for either their interests or their career aims or indeed the program or the school. We sometimes have to cut those people loose because the lack of interest, motivation, et cetera, at the application stage, that is usually a flag and not a great indicator of what would happen once they came into the classroom and and their potential to succeed in the classroom. So I think that's all to say that the applicant's journey and their story and their research and all of that does play a huge role in any decision. So we need to be able to sort of dig deeper into that before getting to any percentages and likelihood of being accepted. Right. I also say that at the end of the day, you're going to be 100% in or 100% out. There is truth in that. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie. Really appreciate you joining me for number 500. Thanks so much, Linda. I'd like to welcome now Dr. Chrissy St. John to number 500. Dr. St. John joined Accepted a few years ago after a distinguished career in international MBA and graduate admissions at both Vanderbilt and Dartmouth Tuck. She also served on the board of directors of the MBA Career Services Council and the Consortium for Graduate Studies in Management. That was in addition to her duties at Vanderbilt and Dartmouth Tuck. <laughs> so the question for you is, What's the value of attending school admissions events, whether virtual or in-person? Actually, both categories. I think this is really critically important because a lot of times when I'm talking with clients and I'll ask them, so why is it you want to go to this school? What is it that you're looking for? Oh, it's, it's ranked high. That's all they know about it. They don't know whether the companies they want to work for recruited that school. They don't know what the personality of the school or the students is like. And it's so easy now to go to virtual events. And also, now that COVID seems to have laying, it's laying low for a while, in-person events, the big fairs, MBA fairs all over the U.S. and the world are taking place again. And that's an important place to go and at least meet the people who are the admission staff of the school. They usually bring alums with them, maybe even a current student. And you can get a lot of information that you'll never find on the website from those people. So that's the first thing. And as a good example, I was talking to someone a few years ago when I was at Dartmouth. And the guy was telling me, I said, what do you like to do? And he's, oh, well, I'm a big, I'm a big skier and I love to trek and go hiking and that sort of thing. I said, well, did you know that Dartmouth has its own skiway? 
you didn't know that. <laughs> Not even on the website, but they do. It's a small bunny slope, but nevertheless, you can run over there a few minutes before class, do a couple of runs, and then go to class. Wow. But, <laughs> and students actually used to do that. But the another thing is that you get to look at the, the building. So where are the faculty located? If I need to go to career services, is it in a total different building? Or is it going to be convenient for where I can just run down between classes and have an appointment with my counselor? Where are the faculty located? Are they all over different buildings in the campus? Are they in the same building that most of your classes are? So these are things that you'll never find out on the website because they don't think about publishing them. Another thing that's really important is finding out what sort of activities you can do there. Now, one of the best things is obviously to go in person, but I know that's not feasible for some people, especially if you're international and you can't get over to visit all the schools over here. But you get to sit in on a class and see the dynamics in the classroom. And to remedy that for people who can't get there, a lot of schools do online classes that you can sit in on. I've done that with a few myself because I just find it really interesting. I mean, Kellogg does it, Chicago does it. I'm sure probably everybody does it. But you can see how the faculty work. You can see the things you'll be discussing. And one thing that people don't know is that with the very sophisticated technology today, schools are using application systems that actually log, record when you come to visit. Anytime you click on their website to go see something, they know it. Well, if you have never even bothered to go to the website or even go to a basic how to apply website or uh, webinar, they know that. So at the end of the day, if apps are piling in and they've got to choose between you and someone else and you're both saying, oh, yeah, I'm really excited about your school. They aren't going to believe you if you haven't been to a single event. That's for sure true. If you have not reached out to students or alums or even whoever your admissions person, point person might be. So this is something that I know a lot of international students I've worked with are afraid to do that because it's not what you do in their country. But here it is not only encouraged, it's really expected of you. Right. Now, obviously, there's value to in-person. There's value to the, the virtual events. Are there also risks in messing up when you're at these events? Yes, there are. If you are unkind or rude to either students or staff members, we had one of our uh, receptionists would report back to us. Well, this person was just really bad-mouthing Nashville or bad-mouthing the class he sat in on or saying things about, oh, well, this is not the kind of school I want to be at. I want to be at Harvard or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter what school it is or what it's talking about. People hear that. Yeah. They will note it. If you are very arrogant or standoffish, the students, if you go to lunch with students, students will make their report. Right, for sure. I want to work with someone who isn't open to learning who they are and finding out more about the school. If you don't seem to be interested in the school, you're sitting there on your phone the whole time, like in a class setting, it gets noted. So mind your manners. 
Yeah, for sure. It is a matter of minding your manners. Absolutely. But I'm uh, the, the benefits of participating in these events far outweigh the risks, as long as you're reasonably cur- courteous. Yes. That's, that's the key. All right. Absolutely. I think it's really one of the things that is most misused or not used at all by people. Because when you're talking to them during the interview and they say, so what do you like about our school? Well, if you say, oh, you're highly ranked and I like the city of New York, that's not it. It's like going up to a young woman and asking her for a date. I'd like to go out with you because you're beautiful. Nothing else? (laughs) It is like dating. Definitely an analogous situation there. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing your insight. Thank you for joining me on number 500. Okay. Thank you, Valentina, for the opportunity. I want to welcome Dr. Mary Mahoney, who, when she's not helping accept his clients, get into medical school or other healthcare-related programs, or perhaps English-related programs, is a tenured English professor and director of medical humanities at Elmira College. She had advised applicants for over 20 years. So here's a question for you today, Mary. How do I convey empathy effectively in a medical school personal statement and later in interviews? So let's tackle the writing first. Okay. When you're writing the personal statement, in order to convey empathy, you probably want to tell a story that belongs to someone else, that the story could be a, um, a patient, it could be an experience shadowing, it could be any kind of relevant experience that associates with medicine. When telling the other person's story, however, we want to make sure that we tell the story according to what it meant to them. So we don't want to sort of compete with who gets to put meaning to this story. But we ha- what we want to demonstrate is that we could actively listen well enough to understand the nuances of the experience for someone else in order to demonstrate that we have the ability to pay attention, listen, and glean what an experience means to someone else. And in writing, then, we really encourage, by way of an individual story, someone reading that story, uh, reading your essay, is able to then say, oh, the person writing this story really has the ability to understand deeply what the life that that someone else is living. Put themselves in somebody else's shoes, so to speak. Right. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And then... One key takeaway from understanding that would also be, as, say, a medical professional, what could you possibly do to help them? Or where do you see a problem uh, that could possibly be rectified? And so listening and understanding and conveying the story according to someone else's life and their terms, but also maybe adding at some point what this means or what this what could be done to help this person is not necessarily a bad way to conclude. But really, the storytelling is, is on behalf of someone else. And then you derive something, some lesson from it as a future caregiver. And certainly realize that by listening and by re-narrating someone else's story, we actually grow in our ability to have compassion and recognize the significance of differences in the world and among many different people, and that we would have 
an obligation as someone in a leadership role to know how to intervene. And that takes practice and it takes trial and error at times, but also the work of a team. And so all of these things come into play with why it's so important to practice listening and reconveying someone else's story. It helps us grow as in, in character. And it would help the, an applicant show cultural sensitivity. It would help them show teamwork skills if they're in a team. It helps them show perhaps leadership if they're trying to affect change or influence or persuade. So. Absolutely. And if you're reconveying a story for someone who does not live a similar life to your own, and they may experience hardships, and they may experience issues with poverty or uh, just disenfranchised cultural values or something, it helps us understand what might be our biases or our own privilege that is perhaps previously gone unrecognized or unacknowledged. So once we start to have that kind of introspection about ourselves, we become better at being able to engage with other people and do the right thing. Before we close, what advice do you have for our listeners in terms of conveying empathy in the interview? So I would imagine that that could be a little bit tricky to try to think about how can I convey that I'm kind of skilled as an empathetic person and how do we convey that in person, right? So in an interview, again, and this maybe is a surprise, but the key message is that you listen and engage with someone and that you you engage in a conversation that, which is an exchange between two people and that we don't override anyone speaking with us or interject. But we say things like, how do we, how do we acknowledge what someone is saying? We, we give responses like, that was challenging. Or we share how we feel. Oh, that's so sad. Or we show gratitude. I appreciate that you shared that with me. Or we show interest. And what happens after that? Or we show support. And then that might sound like, I would like to help you out with that. What can I do to help with this? And so, and and therefore then we create this reciprocity in conversation that demonstrates that we're really having a conversation and this conversation means something. Form of active listening really in the interview. Yeah, you would think that listening wouldn't be demonstrating, but in a way, active listening very much demonstrates something. Demonstrates empathy. (laughs) I care about the other person, right? Yeah. Great advice. Thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you. Welcome to Michelle Stockman, professional journalist, former Columbia Business School admissions insider, and experienced MBA admissions consultant. She happened to join Accepted in 2007. So when I say she's very experienced, I'm not kidding. (laughs) 15 years. Is is that hard to believe? It's hard to believe. It's gone by so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have really enjoyed all the clients that I've gotten to know through the years And it's really been a fun journey, both personally for myself and and for my clients. Wonderful. Yeah. No, that's uh, certainly one of the perks of this work is getting to know our clients and helping them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the question that you want to pose and answer is, what aspect of the application usually requires the most work? 
That's right. Nearly everyone who comes to me as a client is an incredibly exceptional individual. Otherwise, they wouldn't be thinking about doing an MBA. So in terms of their transcripts, in terms of their resumes, in terms of their job qualifications, everything is top-notch and it's up to refining the story. But one thing that I would say nine times out of 10, where we spend a lot of time is thinking through future goals. And I think that a lot of applicants come and have a general idea of what they want to do. They know they want to do something different in terms of the future, whether they've gone as far as they can go in the position that they're working in and the industry they're working in, and they need that MBA to gain the skill set to move up within the company or the industry, or they want to switch industries. These are all absolutely valid and good reasons to want to do an MBA. But if you come with just that and put that in your application, that is not specific enough. And that's not really compelling because that is what everyone wants to do when it comes to deciding to pursue an MBA. What makes the difference are people who've really thought through, okay, when I walk off the stage with my diploma in hand, what would be my dream job? Does that job exist? What can I find out about that job? Can I network around people who are working in those companies or who might know what is entailed, what skill sets people in that job are valued for? And what do I have now that I can bring right away? And then what will I gain within the MBA program that will make me a strong candidate for that? And also, you know, we had just been through some pretty intense worldwide events in terms of the pandemic, in terms of energy crisis. And you need to show you're flexible. It's good to have a couple companies where you could see yourself work or, you know, a a little hint of a plan B in case that first plan A doesn't work for some reason. If you're an international person to show that, yes, you may want to work, say, if you target North America or Europe, but you're also willing to look somewhere else if that's where the company needs you. So that is one thing that that we work on uh, together first. And then the long-term goal is also something that you need to put some thought into. It needs to be something that is inspiring, that answers a big question of life. What if this was possible? I want to be a leader in that what if. I want to be like uh, Steve Jobs on a stage or a TED Talk participant, able to capture the attention of whoever's reading that application with this big idea that I want to solve or I want to refine in terms of my long-term MBA plans. And that is something that's going to make whoever's reading your application sit up from wherever they are, look at their stack of applications that, you know, they might be ho-hum about and read this one and say, yes, this is in the yes pile. I'm going to fight for this person because I like their idea. I think it's exciting. I think I learned something new uh, when I read their application because they gave me some context, some background that I didn't know. And I think they've got the skill set and the personality uh, to be a leader in that aspect of the field or, or whatever industry they're in. So this is how I often find that when I work with applicants, we, we spend a lot of time talking uh, about this. I challenge them 
to really brainstorm, to really think it through because it's harder, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So it's something that takes a little bit more thought and effort. And when it's done well, it can be really exciting to read. And that is the goal. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much. That was a fantastic question and answer. So I really want to thank you for joining me for number 500. Well, congratulations to you, Linda. It's always a pleasure. And you're an incredible businesswoman and entrepreneur (laughs) and so much respect. Thank you. Thank you so much. At this point, I want to thank all the consultants who participated in this very special number 500 show. I really appreciate your contributions, your time, your thoughts, and of course, your expertise. Listener, I want to thank you too for joining me for our 500th episode. There would be no 500 if you and others had not listened for the last 499 episodes. So thank you too for your support. I'm rather proud of this milestone and I want to give credit where credit is due. It's to the fantastic guests we've had for the last over 10 years and also to the listeners who've consistently listened week in and week out. Quick reminder, master the paradox at the heart of graduate admissions by downloading our free guide, Fitting In and Standing Out, The Paradox at the Heart of Admissions. You can grab your copy at exhibit.com slash F-I-S-O for Fitting In, Standing Out. I also want to thank all my colleagues, friends, and guests today who joined me for this episode and have joined me for hundreds of episodes previously, the 500 episodes previously. In terms of today's show, I found it absolutely fascinating that there was little, very little, or almost no really, duplication in the questions today's guests chose to address. When I called for volunteers for this episode, I asked consultants to just say, what question do you feel applicants don't think about enough? And they came up with all these questions individually. There again, there's some overlap, but I like to think of it more as that jigsaw puzzle that I'd like to uh, talk about in terms of the application. Everything is fitting together and adding to your insight into the application process. So today's very meaty and informative episode is a result. And I hope you keep in mind this wealth of advice that you got today as you apply. If you have friends approaching their graduate school applications with trepidation or at least concern about the process, please feel free to tell them about this show or leave a review on iTunes specifically about this show. Again, the link to the show, which you can share with your friends is accepted.com slash 500. That's pretty easy to remember, accepted.com slash 500. And we link from there to Apple Podcasts and many other podcast hosting services. Thank you again for joining me. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again and one fascinating guest next week for number 501. <laughs>